1: On this episode of Beyond Fear, the Sex Crimes podcast, Alexa and I talk with Dr. Nicole Fox, a professor at California State University, Sacramento, in the Division of Criminal Justice. She joins us to talk about how rape is used during wartime as a tool of genocide. This episode is challenging to listen to, so we encourage you to listen with a friend or in short chunks. It is also okay to turn this off. I'm Dr. Alyssa Ackerman.
0: And I'm Dr. Alexa Sardina. Please join us as we go Beyond Fear. Dr. Nicole Fox is an assistant professor and colleague of mine in the Criminal Justice Division at California State University, Sacramento. Her research focuses on how racial, ethnic, and gendered violence impacts communities, including the ways remembrances of adversity shape the dynamics of social change. In her current work, Dr. Fox focuses on how post-genocide communities remember violence through the creation of national collective memories embodied in memorials and monuments. So welcome to Beyond Fear, Nikki.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: We are so lucky to have you as a guest today, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation. The first question we'd love to ask you is really how did you become interested in this topic or how did you start studying genocide specifically?
2: Yeah, I I'm a grandchild of of Holocaust survivors and so I think that sparked my interest at a young age just wondering how people recover from mass atrocity and mass violence. And then when I was in college, that's when the Iraq War began and I also wanted to know How does that affect women and how does that affect children, especially abroad? I really started thinking about violence on these massive levels and trying to figure out how can we stop violence even on these micro levels by looking at these macro levels of violence. And so I figured if we wanted to ever prevent violence or eradicate violence, especially violence against women, we had to look at these large scale and then also work our way back down to the micro because i think all of them kind of function on a continuum
1: thank you for sharing that i had never really thought about it looking from the micro to the macro but that was it was really insightful can you start by maybe explaining some basic definitions like can you define things like genocide and mass atrocity and genocidal or wartime rape
2: absolutely genocide was really first recognized as a crime under international law in 1946 by the United Nations General Assembly. It was really codified as this independent crime in 1948, and that was what we call the Genocide Convention. And that was after the Holocaust. And before that, genocide had most certainly occurred, but we hadn't labeled it as such. And so the convention now has been ratified by, I think it's 149 states as of January, a couple years ago. The convention embodies these principles that are part of what's called general customary international law. And so what this means is that Whether or not a state has ratified the Genocide Convention, they're bound by this as a principle of international law. And what genocide includes is its intent to destroy in whole or in part national, ethnic, racial, or religious groups. Genocide can take the form of killing these groups, causing serious bodily or mental harm, deliberately inflicting some kind of group conditions that make it hard to live your everyday life, imposing any measures to prevent births of this group, so prevent procreation, and then also forcibly removing any children or any other parts of the group. So you see that especially in genocides of Australian natives and American natives. What has recently come part as the definition of genocide is genocidal rape. Genocidal rape is rape with the intention to destroy a group. What's difficult about genocidal rape and genocide is that it's kind of two parts. So it has this physical part of the definition, which is killing, the forced removal, the bodily harm, prevention of births, all of that. But it also has this mental aspect of it, which is you have to prove intent, and that's a little bit different. Atrocity crimes is an umbrella term, which includes genocide, it includes war crimes, and it includes crimes against humanity, which also includes ethnic cleansing. So mass atrocity is, is a helpful term encompassing all of these different crimes.
0: Can you share with us? We've talked about sort of explanations for rape in other episodes of the podcast. So we are curious to hear what the explanations are for rape during wartime or explanations for genocidal rape. And is there a consensus about these explanations or are there differing opinions?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. Rape is used during genocides and war really because it's effective. So if you're trying to destroy an entire group of people, destroy women. To back up a little bit, if we're thinking about nations and building nations and and nationalism, women are at the centerpiece of that. So they're reproducers of the state. And what I mean by this is that they reproduce children physically. So they're the biological reproducers, but they're also the cultural reproducers, They're the teachers. They're usually the ones that encourage the traditions if we're thinking of gendered norms of a society. They do the cooking and the religion and the community building. And so if you're trying to destroy a community, you can easily do that by destroying the women. So it's a tactic to dismantling all of these other systems that make a society whole by attacking women. Furthermore, Because of their material and symbolic role, what usually happens in genocide and wartime rape is there's actually public rapes of women. And so the public rape and the public torture of women is also used as this tactic to think about invading territory because also men can't protect women from rape. And so in patriarchal cultures, men are supposed to protect the family and protect the women. By raping and publicly sexually torturing women, you're able to also destroy men and masculinity at the same time. It's effective. So it's a a form of dehumanizing an entire population. It can work as a form of torture. It can terrorize entire communities and populations because even the threat of rape destroys communities. And it's really, in some ways, very similar to rape in other contexts because it's about power, domination, misogyny, It can really only function in a patriarchal system, and it's a way of treating women and girls as enemy property. But I also want to just make a note that men are also raped and sexually tortured in times of war and genocide. We know a lot less about it because it's even another dimension of shame for men, and so men rarely come forward. So we just know less about it. And we suspect that it also happens at a slightly lower rate than at the rape of women and, and girls.
0: That's really interesting about the rape of males during wartime, because, you know, it, it is kind of aligns with what we know about the rape of males in society in general. It's like, we know little because few men come forward. So would you say that the explanations then for the rape of males during wartime is consistent with the explanation that we have for the rape of females?
2: Yeah, I think it's a way of dehumanizing the communities. I think it's also a way to disrupt masculinity and to dismantle any of men's power. in communities that are homophobic, it's also another level of shame what also happens sometimes in genocides, which happened in in Rwanda and Bosnia, is that militia also force men to rape other women. And so that's another level as well of genocidal rape, is forcing others to rape in front of others. And so that's also a way of humiliating and shaming and dominating the communities. And what's also important is... The intent to destroy is to wipe out a community, right? You want them to never exist on the planet again. And when someone is publicly raped in a space, they often don't want to live in that space anymore. It functions as a way to have the community run in all different directions to try to escape the site of violence. And that creates... A diaspora, but sometimes it, it doesn't create a very unified diaspora if people are all running from one another. So I have an, an example from my own research is that I interviewed the siblings and the cousins of genocidal rape survivors. And what I actually found was that the siblings and the cousins. We're on a healing path that the survivors of rape and sexual torture didn't get to be on because of the public shame. And so it took them so long before they wanted to see their families again because some of these siblings actually found their sisters naked after the rape. And so what that did is that broke up an already fragile relationship after genocide. After a genocide, an entire generation is usually wiped out, you know, a significant portion of the population. And so whatever lasting kinship relations are left are, are incredibly important and also really delicate because matriarchs have been killed, patriarchs have been killed, siblings, the people you grew up with, they're murdered. So whoever you have left is very delicate. So these exchanges of care have been disrupted at a time when you need them most. And rape further disrupts these already delicate relationships in the aftermath of genocide. And I think that's a really important dynamic to think about that isn't always in the literature.
1: So that leads me to a question regarding the lack of scholarly attention to mass rape during wartime. Why do you think that's the case? And maybe if you can touch on how that relates to maybe a lack of reporting like, how do we even come to understand how often wartime rape occurs?
2: Yeah, I think that there's a lack of, in general, there is a lack of gender analysis in war, in mainstream media, and mainstream scholarship, which reflects the telling of history through the eyes of the victor. And I think that that's the case of a lot of things. But I think that the lack of discussion until pretty recently about wartime rape and genocidal rape also just reflects a larger kind of misogyny and disregard for women's experience in war and genocide that we actually find everywhere in all subjects and all disciplines, and that there's kind of a limited role that we allow for women in these stories of war. You know, they're often the victim, the crying mother, the nurse. And because also there's so much shame around rape, there's also a lack of public narratives to draw on, which I found in Rwanda. It wasn't until really the 1990s that we even started thinking about genocidal rape and rape in wartime seriously. And so there's this great article by Andrew Dworkin and it's, I forgot the title, but it's something like, she's searching for the missing. And so it talks about how she's going to these Holocaust memorials, and she's trying to do research on women, and there's just no women there. And certainly rape happened. And so it really wasn't until the international tribunals for Rwanda and Yugoslavia, there was such an overwhelming preponderance of evidence of genocidal rape that it started integrating into our legal framework and i think that's when we started to understand better the use of rape as a weapon of war and a weapon of genocide
1: so you mentioned the work that you do on wartime rape in rwanda so can you maybe talk a little bit about some of the consequences for the victims of rape during the genocide in rwanda and you had also mentioned the Holocaust. So maybe you could touch on that a little bit as well. And so what if any of these consequences differ from those uh, victims of other types of sexual violence as well?
2: Yeah, I mean, there's consequences for survivors of genocidal rape. There's the physical consequences. So it's genocidal rape is usually known to be sadistic. And often women experience these long lasting physical consequences. Sometimes they're not able to get pregnant afterwards, have also sorts of physical ramifications. They also, there's high rates of AIDS and genital mutilation as well. And a, another physical consequence is that children are born out of rape. And that adds a, another level in that women I interviewed, some of them had children and everybody around them kind of knew these were children born out of rape. And And some found communities that were accepting, and some women also accepted their children. And some women had a really hard time because every time they saw their children, they were reminded of the rape. Furthermore, some of their community members didn't really understand the context of genocidal rape. And so other fellow community members said that they had collaborated with the enemy. And some women were taken as sex slaves and as wives, and again, this wasn't always seen as non-consensual by community members. But there's also, you know, social consequences that I would imagine we see across the board of rape survivors, so isolation, shame, the breakdown of relationships, of trust, different trauma responses, and then as I mentioned earlier, kind of the breakdown of different kinship relationships as well, especially if that rape is is known to others, if it was a public rape or it was disclosed. Some women that I interviewed never told anybody about the rape, even when they had remarried. And so they still carried around quite a bit of shame. And so they would travel pretty far distance to go to a rape support group in order to remain anonymous so that no one in their community knew. But the almost total destruction that genocide does, genocidal rape really finishes that off in a lot of ways in that some women felt permanently damaged and had a lot of self-blame as well, which I think you also see across the board. So this isn't that different. What we're starting to see across genocides is a couple of things. One is that sometimes women chose to be raped instead of being killed. And so that's still rape, but Sometimes community members don't see it that way. They see it as collaboration, again, with the enemy. Some women actually begged to be killed instead of raped, and so they were not allotted that. And finally, we see that rape is really used as a tactic. In Rwanda, it's said to have been the rule rather than the exception of women, but we really see that as a weapon that's used across multiple genocides, across continents, that is really consistent as a way to dismantle and harm and destroy an entire community.
0: So that's really interesting, Nikki, and it really brings up two questions for me. And one is, in order to give our listeners and give us an idea of the magnitude of this issue, how many survivors are we talking about during times of genocide? And you can talk about that during. Rwanda specifically, compared to other genocides? And then also, are these men that are committing these assaults during times of genocide somehow different from men in that society in general? Is there some sort of explanation on an individual level that differentiates them from others?
2: Yeah, those are really good questions and, and really difficult ones that I think scholars are are still trying to come to. So the question about numbers is a hard one, and I don't think that we have accurate numbers. So there's been a lot of different methodologies used to try to triangulate data in a way to get more accurate numbers. So one way is they looked at the number of births, and then how many rapes most likely resulted in births, and then multiplied them that way. They also looked at qualitative data, And then also tried to look at how many rapes also resulted in death. And this has been a big debate because in the beginning they said there was between 250,000 rapes and 500,000 rapes. And that's a pretty huge difference. The most... Accurate that I think there was was a group of scholars that wrote a piece that I believe is called Counting the Countless, and it's about rape victimization during the genocide in Rwanda. And they arrived at 350,000 rapes. And I think that's the most accurate at this point. But we really, we don't know about other genocides. We do know that there were systematic rape camps in Bosnia in which mostly serbian men raped muslim women and this was a little bit different in that pregnancies were intentional for these rapes and that women were raped multiple times daily and this was because serbian men had the nationalist ideology that their sperm and the power of their genes could actually override the the muslimness of the women And so then they could then produce Serbians for a greater Serbian nation. And that was a little bit different than some other intentions behind rape. But again, the numbers are are really difficult to come by. In terms of the perpetrators, I know less because I have not personally interviewed perpetrators. And the scholarship on perpetrators of rape is much more narrow and smaller than the perpetrators of genocide in general. So I can tell you about Rwanda a little bit about the perpetrators in general, and we can maybe theorize that this might be true for rape. Most killers killed one or more people, but a small percentage killed the majority of people, if that makes sense. So while there was mass participation in the genocide in Rwanda, which was a little bit different than other genocides, it was also very, very quick. It was about three months long in which upwards of a million people were killed. We know that the majority of the killings were actually done from a few people, even though there was mass participation, but the majority of people hadn't killed prior to the the genocide and they killed small amounts of people. And a lot of folks were actually coerced into killing as well. And so I imagine that some of these trends might be true for rape, but I don't i don't actually know. Can
1: you talk at all about what can be done to prevent acts of gender-based violence or wartime rape?
2: I actually don't think we can prevent gender-based violence during wartime or... During genocide, but I think that we can prevent war and genocide, if that makes sense. So I think war and genocide are fought on the bodies of women often. And we also know that after wars are particular points in time in which domestic violence spike. When the soldiers come home, when there's a ceasefire, that's actually one of the most dangerous times for women. And so I think instead of thinking about preventing wartime rape or genocidal rape, we have to think about preventing war and genocide. And I think there's the atrocities task force, actually supported by the U.S. government, is one where we're thinking about how to intervene and where are high-risk countries for genocide. I think that's a great way to think about preventing genocidal rape is by preventing genocide. And I think that we have to be really careful about when we decide to go into war. I would advocate that, that we actually dismantle some of the war system, because I think that with war comes toxic masculinity and violence that often hurts the most vulnerable populations of that society.
0: My question now is different after hearing your response to the prevention question. Since you mentioned that you really don't think that we can prevent genocidal rape, but we can prevent genocide. So my question is that if we start to have successful prevention efforts at the state level prior to a genocide occurring, would then there be less likely to have genocidal rape during times of war or during genocide. So does it work in reverse at all?
2: So if you're dismantling patriarchy, what goes hand in hand with that would be also eradicating the disparity that you have, the economic disparity, the political disparity. I would imagine that all other forms of justice would come with that. If all of those other things are coming hand in hand with the dismantling of patriarchy, this will not be a high risk country for genocide or war. Because what we know is there's usually economic turmoil. There's a regime change. There's really strong nationalist ideology. What comes with nationalist ideology is almost always patriarchal ideology as well. And so it seems like if you have those prevention efforts, I would imagine you wouldn't have these precursors that are necessary for a genocide to unravel and my you know very limited experience when i'm looking at rwanda cambodia bosnia armenia and the holocaust all of those had very strong patriarchy very strong nationalism either economic turmoil or political turmoil set up years before the genocide and so i think that doing all of these other forms of social justice also And dismantling patriarchy and and misogyny also is a form of genocide prevention and also genocidal rape prevention.
1: I sit with perpetrators all the time. I sit with survivors all the time. I have a pretty thick skin and a lot of... I'm going to start crying. Okay. (laughs) Um... I don't get triggered by a lot and I can feel as I'm sitting here, like my hands are going numb and like Mm. super emotional. This never happens in my work. I know. I've never seen this happen to you. (laughs) So I want to ask a question around like how you do this. Like I have heard, I've sat with thousands at this point probably a thousand survivors and over 500 perpetrators. And I have never, this has never happened. (laughs) Um, What has uh, come up for me is that, you know, I, I do this work with, you know, men and women who have perpetrated sexual violence. And I have sat with the stories of probably around a thousand survivors at this point. And there's not many things that, Um, trigger me. Um, I've always felt like I had a pretty thick skin, even though I have a lot of empathy, both for people who have experienced sexual harm um, and those who have perpetrated it. And I found myself listening to uh, the responses that you gave to the questions that we had, and I found myself physically triggered. Um And that doesn't happen very often in this work. And so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how you are able to navigate this work um, without it affecting your physical and mental well-being. Um, because this is really, really difficult to hear, even as a sex crimes researcher.
2: That is such an important question so thank you so much for for asking that it's really difficult so I remember actually just last year I realized that probably a day does not go by where I don't think about rape or talk about rape every single day of my life mm-hmm. since I've started this work so that's a just a different reality than than other folks And,
1: Mm
2: -hmm. um, it is, it is really hard. And some days are harder than others. I'm currently finishing up a book and I just know that the chapter on genocidal rape is the one that sometimes I, I feel like I'm dragging my, my feet to revise. And sometimes I, I kick myself for that. And then I realize, oh, well, of course that's, that's why I don't want to come back to chapter five, Mm -hmm. but also conducting the research can be really hard and, I'm glad that you asked this question because I think talking about secondary trauma is really important. And there's intergenerational trauma. So the generations that come after a genocide, even when they weren't alive for the genocide experience, pretty significant trauma responses. And I see that in the children of my participants, but also there's secondary trauma. When I was doing research in Rwanda, I was there for this commemoration period and people were having flashbacks during these commemorations in museums, mm. and they'd be screaming and yelling Kenyarwanda and Kenyarwanda, you know, he's raping me, he's raping me. And and this type of trauma is, is very, very contagious. So it would just, it, it would spread like wildfire in, mm. in these stadiums of thousands of people. It, it was actually pretty scary at one point, because these ambulances got so full, people were needing medical attention, and that happened. And this this was 10 years ago, so they have it much more under control. Wow. Anyways, I, I took some children that I was living with to a pool. They were the only Rwandans at the pool. This was a, a hotel for white folks, pretty much. And we were swimming, and I kept hearing people have this trauma response. And I'd look around, thinking there was a survivor nearby, and it was just the kids playing. And I couldn't figure out what was going on. I kept hearing it. Is someone experiencing this somewhere nearby? Is my hearing really good? What's going on? And I told one of my friends who was a priest, and he's like, you're experiencing secondary trauma. You need to take a break. Wow. I did. I took a couple days off. And so what I've learned is you you have to do whatever you can to take care of yourself. And you have to prioritize that. When I do my field work, I always pay, which is kind of a ridiculous price, to use a hotel gym. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I run on the treadmill or the bike, until I can't think anymore, because the thoughts are just so hard. And also when I'm interviewing, I've learned too that sometimes it's okay that you cry when someone's telling you a story. Yeah. And there have been stories that have been so horrible and so unexpected. I, I won't share them here, but I've had to pull over and like vomit on the side of the road. They're just horrific what people have lived for. And and those haunted me throughout my life in that some of them, my brain locked away and they did not come back until I had children because these were mothers that that told stories about their children. So yeah, it is a lifelong commitment to the work because these mm-hmm. memories come back to you. But there are ways to take care of yourself. And I think if you, if you believe that Violence can be eradicated, even though there's no evidence to that. It, it does keep you going yeah. while you do such difficult work.
1: Intergenerational trauma refers to emerging research into how mass culture and historical traumas affect the survivors' children and future generations. Mass cultural trauma includes the genocide in Rwanda, the Holocaust, the displacement of American Indians, and the enslavement of African Americans. According to researcher Brent Bezo and others, the transgenerational impacts of this trauma include risky health behaviors, anxiety, shame, food hoarding, overeating, authoritarian parenting styles, high emotional neediness, low community trust and cohesiveness, and a tendency to live in survival mode. Researchers have found that these effects are not just psychological, but it can be familial, social, cultural, neurobiological, and genetic as well.
0: I just wanted to say, too, for our listeners, is that for people that do research like myself and Nikki and Alyssa, there's not much attention paid to what you take on emotionally when you're having these conversations. There's not really much discussion of it either. I mean, I don't know how many conferences I've been to and how many panels I've sat on, but I've never really heard, except for maybe twice, people talk about self-care. Researchers talk about self-care in terms of when they've spoken to survivors or they've spoken to perpetrators of any types of violence. It inevitably, if you're human, takes a toll on you, and we just don't talk about it that much.
1: Yeah, you know, one of the things that comes to mind as you say that Lex you know often I talk about it when I give public talks that afterwards I end up with a vulnerability hangover and it takes a day or two to recover from it but that also happens in the research and I would even guess that you know after recording this podcast today there will be a vulnerability hangover for me because as I said this was very, very difficult to hear, and I could feel the physical body trauma response as a survivor of sexual violence hearing some of this. And I don't think we pay enough attention to the toll that it takes on us as those working in the field, and that is not to take away from any of the suffering of the people that we work with, but also this work can be traumatic for us too. And so, Nikki, thank you so much for sharing such an authentic and vulnerable answer to that question.
0: So, Nikki, thank you so much for joining us today and talking about such a difficult topic that really doesn't get too much attention in U.S. conversations about rape and sexual violence. We really don't look at the global perspective. So we really appreciate your research and your willingness to join us today. I mean, I expect some of our listeners will be interested in learning more about the topic of genocide or genocidal rape. Are there any books or websites that you would recommend for them?
2: Thank you so much. Yes, there's lots of resources out there, and I hope your listeners will possibly be able to catch my book coming out in spring 2021. And It's called Rising from the Ashes, Memory and Reconciliation in Rwanda After the Genocide. There's also some other good classics by Cynthia Enloe and Catherine McKinnon that do some good work on wartime rape and gender and genocide. And there's some new work also on rape in Uganda by Holly Potter, which I think is great. So all of those would be great for your listeners to check out. And I also have a couple articles on the topic if you wanted to check out my own work.
0: So perfect. We'll be sure to share those titles with our listeners on our website and our blog posts. And we just want to say thank you again, Nikki, for joining us today. We very much appreciate it. And thank you for
1: all the hard work that you do. Yeah, thank you so much, Nikki.
2: Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Beyond Fear. The resources and readings referenced during this episode are available on our website, we hope you will join us next time when we talk with Monisha Moe Miller and Guy Hamilton Smith. Moe Miller is an adjunct lecturer of criminal justice at California State University, Fullerton, where she teaches courses in juvenile justice and corrections. Her research includes topics related to trauma and delinquency. Guy Hamilton Smith is a fellow at the Sex Offense Litigation and Policy Resource Center at the Mitchell Hamline School of Law. His work focuses on the ways in which legal responses to sexual violence are ineffective and harmful. During this episode, we each discuss how sexual victimization has impacted our lives. Remember, you can find our episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and other podcasting platforms. Head to our website at www.beyondfearpodcast.com for blog posts, resources, and readings, and episode transcripts. Follow us on Twitter at fearcrimes, Instagram at Beyond Fear Podcast, and like and follow our Facebook page called Beyond Fear, the Sex Crimes Podcast. Thank you, as always, for listening.